You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. They were literally a pioneering congregation. Recognizing the potential of the frontier settlement, in 1854 they planted themselves at 9th and Olive, at the heart of what four years from then would become the capital of the 32nd state in the Union. Missional from the very outset, they deliberately named themselves after the apostle whose mission it was to carry the gospel to the nations. For decades, through waves of immigration, a devastating civil war, rapid industrialization, an economic boom and bust, St. Paul's ministered to the elite and to the downtrodden. And they were amazingly successful. Home to governors, war heroes, wealthy businessmen, and countless people of influence, they became a powerhouse of ministry in the rapidly expanding city. They organized a convention that launched a church planning movement, springing three churches into existence in the city within the first few years of their history. Their reputation was established for building frontier gospel outposts for the name of Jesus. They were so successful that they contemplated a move. Looking to establish themselves for long-term minist- the long-term future of their gospel ministry, they disassembled their building, and stone by stone, timber by timber, they hauled it by ox cart up the hill to a new plot of land with a commanding view. Their ambition, at least as I imagine it, was to be a lampstand. A lampstand on which the flame of the Spirit of Christ burned bright. A witness to their neighborhood and to the nations. And on Christmas Day in 1913, they celebrated their first service in their new building. Now called St. Paul's on the Hill right here, where you're sitting. But that once vibrant, missions-minded, church-planting, gospel-preaching congregation is no more. Somewhere, they lost their way. They had a reputation of being alive. They were prominent in their many good works. But this building, with its Masquerade architecture and intricate stained glass windows is all that remains. That congregation is dead. And as he warned the church in Ephesus, the Lord Jesus came and he removed their lampstand. Dear brothers and sisters, the story of the congregation that built this grand building is a cautionary tale. It's even more sobering when we consider the ways in which our story corresponds to theirs. The warning that the church, the warning that Jesus gave to the church in Sardis was not heeded in St. Paul. And while it might be helpful for us, we can't go back and open up the books to see precisely where the congregation lost its way. 
But in reality, we don't need to. We have the words of the living Christ open here and now before us. And we would do well to pay attention. So let's pause together now and ask for his help. Lord Jesus, Spirit of the living Christ, you have been poured out on us for, the, for this very purpose, that we would see our need and fly to Jesus for help, for refuge, for strength. And so this morning, would you shake off our lethargy? Would you cut through the distraction of sin? And would you reveal to us our hidden errors? Compel us to come to you for grace. Preserve us in the path of faith. For the glory of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So, for the sake of orientation this morning, as we look at the letter to the church in Sardis, we're going to consider it in three parts. First, we're going to look at the warning that Jesus gives the church in Sardis in verses 1 and 2. Second, we're going to look at the remedy that Jesus gives in verses 3 and 4. And finally, we're going to look at the amazing hope for those who by faith overcome in verses 5 through 6. Now, before we get started, kids, I know that it's, we've, we've talked about the challenges of Sunday mornings. Uh, there's, there are things here for you too this morning, and so I'm going to ask you to do something in just a couple minutes, so make sure that you're, you're tuned in. So, let's think about the warning. The city of Sardis had an amazing history. Rich deposits of gold and silver were discovered there and then exploited there in the 6th century, and it became a place of an amazing wealth. In fact, the city itself was more like a fortress. It was set up on a rock outcropping that jutted out like a pier from the face of Mount Timoleus. And with its high walls and its steep cliffs, it was nearly impregnable to invaders. And perhaps not surprisingly, these strong defenses led its citizens to complacency. Twice in the following centuries, inattentive watchmen failed to spot small bands of soldiers who climbed up the rock face and slipped in and simply opened the gates to the waiting armies. Sardis, in fact, never recovered from its final defeat at the hands of Antiochus the Great in 218 BC. The Seleucids carried off the wealth, they imposed crippling taxes, and for the next 300 years, Sardis lived off its former glory. Kind of like that one guy we all know who's still wearing his high school letter jacket, right? That's what it was like. Given the, church, given the town's large Jewish population, when the good news of the gospel reached Sardis, the church grew quickly. In fact, the city's relative unimportance to the Roman Empire meant that it took longer for Christians to be identified as distinct from the Jews and then persecuted as illegitimate religionists. And so the church at Sardis early on had all kinds of opportunities that were not enjoyed by sister congregations in places where government oppression of Christians was more intense. And perhaps it was this freedom, in part, that helped the church in Sardis establish a reputation among the other churches. But apparently, 
the name they had made for themselves was no longer reflective of their own reality. Look at verses 1 through 2. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Though it considered itself spiritually alive, in reality the church at Sardis was in the condition of spiritual death. While others might not have seen it, Jesus did. And perhaps, like the city itself, the church was living off its former glory. We have some hints for what the condition in the church was like in verse 2. Jesus exhorts the Sardian church to become, to become one who is watchful and to strengthen what remains and is about to die. That there remains something yet to be strengthened implies that the church began with a life of faithful gospel witness. But somewhere, it had lost its way. It set out with a passion for the name of Jesus, but had compromised its mission as time wore on. The letter to Sardis closely parallels what we saw back in the letter to Ephesus. And looking back at chapter 2 helps us see what might be happening in chapter 3. Notice, as you look back, that just like in Sardis, Jesus calls the Ephesian church to repent and to do the works that they were doing at first. According to chapter 2, verse 4, the Ephesian church had lost its first love. And should they ignore Jesus' gracious call to return, he warns them that he will come and that he will remove the lampstand, their lampstand, from its place. Now, the book of Revelation can get confusing when we forget the symbolism. Remember that first picture of Jesus that we beheld at the beginning of this book? If you need a reminder, just look at the center window over my head. In fact, kids, here's the part I was talking about. As we look back at John chapter 1, see how many things that John describes in, in Revelation chapter 1 you can see in the window. So, Revelation chapter 1 verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of those lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, 
His face was like the face of the sun, shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet though dead, as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are about to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So we see Jesus shining like the sun, standing in the midst of the lampstands. The lampstands are the churches. And what is the purpose of a lampstand? It's to hold up the light. The mission of the church as lampstand is to shine the light of Jesus to the outside world. Our kids know this because we sing the song, right, in Sunday school. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, right? Am I going to hide it under a bushel? That's right. I'm going to let it shine. But the danger for the church in Ephesus is that it was losing its love for Jesus. What good is a lampstand if it isn't holding up the light? That's why Jesus warns the Ephesians to return to their first love. Their first love in making Jesus known. And this helps us see why the situation at Sardis is even more concerning. Because the church at Sardis hasn't only lost its first love. Instead of holding up the name of Jesus to the world, they were preserving their own. Look again at Jesus' warning in chapter 3, verse 2. Wake up and strengthen what remains and what is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. This verse doesn't imply that doing more works would give them right standing before God. Rather, their works were incomplete. They were unfulfilled. Or better yet, they were hollow. While they all started out professing faith in Christ, they were shrinking back in proclaiming Him as Lord of all. Though they claimed to be His people, they were in reality denying Him. They seemed to be more concerned about making a name for themselves. There's a, an important echo here in verse 2 of something that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. He is actually, in writing to the church in Sardis, provoking them to remember this. He's provoking them to remember that simply claiming the name of Jesus doesn't make one a Christian. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one 
who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. While salvation is by grace through faith alone, saving faith is never alone. Works flow from a heart transformed by grace. And the person who believes that Jesus is Lord lives as though Jesus is Lord. He is doing the will of the Father in heaven. And by doing so, we demonstrate that our claim to the Lordship of Jesus is for real. But the Sardians' works were shown to be incomplete because whatever they were saying, they weren't living as though Jesus was real. And Jesus confirms this by giving them a warning quite similar to the one that we saw to the Ephesians. Look at chapter 3, verse 3. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come against you. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus exhorted his disciples to remain diligent in their mission. The mission that he had called them to, to make disciples. And he wanted them to remain diligent in their mission because his final hour would come His final coming would come at an hour that no one expected. In the same way that we would be tempted to relax now if we knew a robber was coming precisely at 8 p.m. tonight, it would be easy for us to slack in our mission if we knew when Jesus would come to wrap up all things. And so his message in Matthew 24 was about remaining vigilant in our mission. But here... In Revelation 3, the message is about something slightly different. It's about repentance. While Jesus is expressing a similar idea that he will come at a time when no one is expecting, he's not talking about his final coming. This is really important. He's saying that he won't wait. The local church is the lampstand on which the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ shines in the world. The local church is the means by which His people are equipped on their task to make disciples of all nations. But the light can't be seen if we put the lampstand on top of the lamp. The church can't make disciples of all nations if it's more concerned about its own exaltation or its own preservation. If some in the church, especially its leaders, are more concerned about preserving their name than his name, he won't wait for the end of time. He will come, and he will come when we're least expecting. The city of Sardis had a great reputation. It had the best wall. I mean, a really, really huge wall. And Mexico even paid for it. And so, its watchmen relaxed. 
resting on their success, they neglected their very reason for existing. And Antiochus came at an hour they were not expecting. The church at Sardis had a great reputation. It had amazing works. And so some of its people relaxed, perhaps even its leaders. They had become more concerned about their standing in the community than being a lampstand for Christ. If they didn't wake up, Jesus said, he was going to come back in an hour that they didn't expect. St. Paul on the hill had a great reputation. They had amazing works. Yet somewhere along the way, they began caring more about their reputation than faithfully bearing witness to the gospel of Christ. And Jesus came at an hour that they didn't expect. City's church has a great reputation. We are a zealous and a faithful and a growing congregation. We're active in ministry. We're home to people of influence. We're driven with a vision for church planting. We're sent out on mission each week to proclaim the beauty and the supremacy of the Lord Jesus. We want the cities to know that Jesus is for real. And yet, because of this success, it would be easy for us to become a church that cares more about its own name than the name of Christ. Compromise happens in subtler ways than we tend to expect. And so while we as a church must be on guard against doctrinal drift or against cultural accommodation, shouldn't we also be as watchful for prayerlessness, for ingratitude, for self-righteousness, for fear of man, for celebrity. While we stand for Jesus on Sundays, are we bending to pressures during the week? At school or at home, do we compromise our witness in order to preserve our own reputation? Are we more motivated by the thought of being known than the thought of Jesus being known? At the root of all gospel compromise is self-importance. Pride is the root of all kinds of sin, and pride is sneaky. We can do works in Jesus' name while mainly motivated by our own glory. We can be tempted to be Christians when it is advantageous and agnostics when it's not. There's so many ways that we could possibly go wrong. So many ways that we could leave the path of faithful witness to trot our own path of self-exaltation. Even that thought is bewildering. We need Jesus' help. And that's exactly what he gives. Now that we've seen the warning, let's look at the remedy. Verse 3, remember therefore what you've seen and heard. Keep it and repent. This, friends, is good news. Jesus says that turning away from self-exaltation looks like holding on to what we've seen and heard. We need to see less of ourselves and we need to see more of King Jesus. We need to remember 
what He has told us about Himself. He is the one, according to chapter 1, verse 5, who loves us and has freed us from our sins and made us a kingdom, priests to His God and Father. He is, according to verse 8 of chapter 1, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who was and is and is to come, the Almighty. He is, according to verse, chapter 1, verse 18, the one who tells us not to fear because He is the one who died and who is alive forevermore, and He holds the keys to death and to Hades. He is the one, chapter 2, verse 8, who died and who came to life for us and for our salvation. He is the one who says to all of those who put their faith in Him, chapter 2, verse 10, I will give you the crown of life. And chapter 2, verse 17, I will give you the hidden manna, and I will give you a white stone with a new name written on it. And as we saw last week, chapter 2, verse 28, I will give you the morning star. Jesus will give us His very self. Friends, when we remember Him, when we remember Him, when we look to Him, the spell of sin is broken. Our slumber is overcome. We regain our bearings. Fear is destroyed in light of His supreme authority. Hopelessness is overwhelmed in the light of His gracious promises. Loneliness is shattered with His personal affection and redeeming love. Self-exaltation becomes as laughable and nonsensical as it really is. How could we put our name over His? How could we care more about what people think about us than what He thinks about us? How could we care more about what people think of us than what they should think about Him? So there are some here this morning, I'm sure, whose faith feels very weak. You might even be asking, am I one of the people that Jesus is talking about in verses 1 through 2? I want to talk to you for a moment. First of all, you're not alone. Anyone who has followed Jesus for some time knows what it's like to find their faith faltering. You may be looking back and wondering what happened to the excitement that you once had about Jesus. You may, fear, you may feel fearful that you've moved so far away from that early love that there's no going back. Hear me, dear friend. Jesus is speaking to you here. These words are Him lovingly, firmly, calling you back to Himself. He tells us that anyone who comes to Him, He will not turn away. And that includes those of us who have grieved Him by our thoughts or by our actions or by our fickle affections. And Jesus says something unusual here. 
about himself in this letter, something that we skipped over at the very beginning, but would be good for us to return, to here, return here for a moment. In verse 1, Jesus says that he has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. This is a beautiful but kind of opaque phrase. And here's what it means. Jesus is saying all the resources of the universe belong to me. Do you need renewal? Call on me, and I will pour out on you afresh the fullness of my spirit. Do you need help? The universe is mine. I will help you. Think about Jesus' words elsewhere. All things have been handed to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Friends, the remedy, the remedy is to look to Jesus. The remedy is to remember Jesus. So we've considered the warning. We've considered what Jesus tells us here. And now I want to consider, finally, the hope. There is confident hope for us in the letter to Sardis. In verses 4 through 5, Pastor David said last week that the best promise in all of the letters was the one that we saw in in chapter 2, verse 28. But I think that the confident hope that's held out here may be even better yet. Jesus comforts the church by reminding us, by reminding the ones in Sardis, that there are some who have not failed in their mission to be bearers of light. These, he says, verse 4, these names have not hidden the name of Christ for their own reputation. They have not compromised their confession. They have not stained their garments by clouding the message of the gospel or going along with the pagan worship of their culture. Instead, they have a faith that testifies openly to Jesus. Their eyes are set on Him. These, Jesus says, will walk with Him because they are worthy. Friends, let that settle in for a moment. Those who put their hope in Jesus will walk with Him. They will live in deep fellowship with Him. They will share intimate friendship with Him with the one who is the creator and the sustainer of the universe. They're not made more worthy by their gospel fidelity. Rather, their lives demonstrate that they have, in fact, been transformed by the Spirit of Christ. Their lives demonstrate the certainty of His promise to draw them into His inner Trinitarian fellowship forever. These, Jesus says, 
will be clothed with white garments because, as we see in other places in Revelation, white garments represent the purity that results from being tested by fire. These, have, these will walk with Jesus because He knows them and they know Him. And these names are to be examples to others in Sardis and to us. Because Jesus, verse 5, says that those who conquer will be like them. Their lives prove that their names are in the book of life, a book from which one's name can never be blotted out. They belong to Jesus forever. At bottom, the issue at Sardis is a search for significance. The Sardinians wanted to be known. They wanted to be loved, and somewhere along the way, some lost sight of their identity in Christ and became more concerned about being known and loved by others. They used their lampstand to draw people to their own name rather than shining the true light of the gospel of Jesus. Ultimately, it seems, some of them chose to deny Jesus rather than to suffer the loss of reputation. But to trade the glory of Christ for the praise of men is the most tragic exchange. And perhaps that's why Jesus leaves us with this final word. To the one who overcomes, he says, I will confess his name before my Father and his angels. Friends, what could possibly be more humbling and more meaningful and more hopeful than the Son of God declaring, Father and all His many angels, this is my friend. As important as it is to be known and valued by others, we weren't designed to find significance or identity apart from the triune God. Without Him, trying to fill our need for intimacy, trying to rebuild our identity, is like shoveling sand into a bottomless pit. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Him. And so maybe that describes you this morning. Perhaps you've not ever put your faith in Him. By His death and resurrection, He has made a way for you to come to Him, to find your rest in Him. That you are here this morning is not an accident. Consider what you've seen and heard and call on Him. Perhaps you're here this morning and you do trust Him, but you're struggling to acknowledge Him before others at work or at home or at school. Friends, we are messy people, uh, but Jesus came for messy people. He's that good. The fact that you're here this morning is not an accident. Remember what you've seen and heard. Keep it and turn to Him. And that's why each week we come to this table. We come to the table because its very purpose, according to the Apostle Paul, is to remember. The Passover supper reminded His people of God's deliverance of Israel 
from death as he rescued them from Egyptian bondage. And the Lord's Supper reminds us of God's greater deliverance of his people out of the bondage of sin through Jesus' atoning death. And this table also doesn't, doesn't only look back. It's not only concerned with the present. It looks to the future. It reminds us that there is a day coming yet when we will feast again with our Lord in that country where there is no stain of sin or death. And so, if you're here this morning and you have professed your faith in Jesus, if you've trusted in Him for the forgiveness of your sins and for life everlasting, you're welcome at this table. So the pastors will come we will distrib- come along and distribute if you will hold out your hand. And then please hold on to the elements and we will eat and drink together. His body is the true bread. His blood is the true drink. Let us serve you.